You are listening to SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast. Right, this is Caitlin Barry with the Society of American Law Teachers speaking with Amanda Lewandowski. Thank you so much for talking to us, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Want to tell us a little bit about where you teach and what you're teaching? Sure. I'm the founding director of Georgetown Law's Intellectual Property and Information Policy Clinic, which started last spring. All right. Is this your first law teaching position? It is as a full-time faculty member. Before this, I was a clinical teaching fellow with NYU Law's Technology Law and Policy Clinic, where I worked on a bunch of counseling matters and some litigation. And when you say you're the founding director, so you were able to create this clinic from scratch? Yes, this is a brand new clinic that is all the lessons that I have learned from my teaching experience, but also really trying to create the kind of clinic I would have just totally loved to have taken as a student. I love that as a vision. So what brought you to law teaching? It was actually a clinic. Um, I didn't take a clinic until the second semester of my third year of law school, and I'd been planning to go to a big law firm that I really liked. I liked the people and I liked the work and I started doing my clinical work and I was like, oh no, I want to be doing this kind of public interest advocacy instead. And at the time my project was housed at the American Civil Liberties Union. And I remember going to my supervisor in kind of a crisis being like, so I guess what I thought I wanted to do is not what I wanted to do. And she and my, and my colleague, who became my colleague, Jason, who runs the Technology Law and Policy Clinic, both kind of gave me the same advice. They were like, nobody is going to hold anything against you if you go work in your job and you learn a lot. And this will always be here for you to come back to when you are ready and when it's the right time. And so I started thinking that I wanted to be more specific than just public interest advocacy being the right job, but I was too scared to tell them that I specifically wanted their jobs because Obviously, somebody had those jobs already, and that's not always the vibe you want to give, being like, how does your exact job exist? Um, But I was able to come back as a clinical teaching fellow, which was a pretty close approximation to that job, and learn the ropes from the person who had really opened me up to clinical teaching in the first place, which I think transformed the way that I approached starting this clinic. As a teacher, that's a pretty high compliment to say, I want to do exactly what you do. Yeah. Have you shared that with them? Uh, Oh, they know. I I told them when I was, I think I told one of them when I was interviewing and my former supervisor at the ACLU is actually now a clinical professor herself at Berkeley. So the network has continued to thrive and we're very lucky that technology law and policy clinics have a pretty close relationship among themselves. We have a biannual meeting, we have a listserv, we communicate, we actually had our first um, new tech clinician orientation that I founded with two other teaching fellows and colleagues. Um, to actually integrate new tech clinicians into the pedagogy of of social justice and clinical teaching. That's great. And so with law teaching always the plan or did you start out in practice and and that evolved over time? Yeah, law teaching was very much not the plan. It had never even occurred to me until right before I graduated that that might be something I was interested in doing. I had planned to go into big law and just thrive there, hopefully, to the extent that one thrives in big law. And I, you know, had found work that I liked, and I found people that I liked, and that seemed, you know, the best of both worlds. And then the possibility of law teaching came online, and I was like, ooh, so that has great people and great work, and you have a really incredible degree of control over 
what you work on, how you work on it. And the big thing for me was realizing that you could train a whole generation of lawyers because the thing that I realized that I liked most in big law was a lot of non-billable work mentoring summer associates, which gets you um, nowhere a lot of the time. Um, And so when I realized that that was sort of all coming online at the same time while I was in practice, I was like, okay, so maybe this is actually more of the kind of thing that really brings together everything you want, not just some of the things you want. Yeah, it really is such an amazing opportunity to combine so many different passions in one position. Um, So I was so excited when you reached out about uh, talking about how you incorporate social justice into your intellectual property work. It's not a field that most people would assume has many opportunities for social justice advocacy. So if you wanted to talk a little bit about sort of what motivates you to bring social justice into your teaching. So one of the things that motivates me to bring social justice into my teaching was that that is what I really would have craved on another level as a law student. And I think a lot about Jane Aiken's article, The Clinical Mission of Justice Readiness, where she says that clinical legal education cannot avoid dealing with justice. But when it comes to technology and intellectual property, it's not that it's easy to avoid dealing with justice. It comes up in our projects all the time, but it's really easy for it not to be a central focus of the conversations we have in the seminar. Um, And I knew that when I started this clinic, I wanted it to be core and central to every conversation we had in the seminar. And I set out what um, some of my colleagues thought was like maybe a too ambitious goal, which is I wanted to teach all the core areas of intellectual property and information policy substantively, all using social justice case studies. So rather than sit down and trying to teach all of copyright law in the course of a seminar, for example, we would teach how to use copyright law to combat revenge porn and examine actual cases that had been filed, actual judgments, actual law review articles that were written about the topic. I actually wrote that one, so I don't feel bad using that as an example. Um, And so through that process, the students learn about substantive intellectual property law in the context of what is a copyrighted work? What is or isn't fair use? What are some of the exclusive rights that are covered by copyright law? And they kind of learn the basics, but through a social justice lens. That's incredibly exciting. And have you, has it been difficult for you to find peers who are interested in teaching in this model? So, so far it hasn't been really there. I think we sort of went offline right before there were a lot of opportunities to have conversations with my clinical colleagues at Georgetown. But I think that there is an interest in this kind of work because I do think um, students really care about this question. And I think there's a really strong, you know, a lot of clinic seminars focus on skills But because of the way I've divided our seminar up into seminar and casework, we work on casework skills as part of our casework. So if you need to prep for a client interview, rather than doing an entire session on interviewing, we do that in the same way you would if you were coming to a partner or a senior staff attorney's office to prep for a call. So we try to fold that into the casework model. The seminar side is really an opportunity for truly what we call these IPIPX social justice units. And we have eight of them, and they center around a bunch of different topics that can be divided broadly as topics related to race, topics related to gender, topics related to capitalism, and topics related to the criminal legal system. And we usually have have about two units in each one that cross-sect intellectual property and information policy. I love that framework. Uh, It also just seems a really transparent framework for students to understand and hopefully to start to connect to the goals of your teaching. 
Um, yeah. And we actually get the students to really connect to those goals by doing these exercises called deep dives. So these were something that I learned when I was a fellow at NYU, and I've continued to expand and um, experiment with. And essentially, I recognize that I am not going to know everything that's interesting about IPIP issues to my students. So the deep dives let them create their own IPIPX social justice models with a teammate. And so they curate the readings, they create the discussion questions, and they actually facilitate this discussion during class. And the nice thing is not only are they getting to experiment with bringing their own passions and interests into our pedagogy, they get to experiment with being a teacher. And for me, I got to teach a class like that actually about revenge porn in the technology law and policy clinic when I was a student. And that was what kind of clinched it for me, realizing that this is what I wanted to be doing was that opportunity to teach. And so hopefully for, you know, maybe not every year, maybe not every semester, but every once in a while, we'll have a student who realizes, man, this is what I want to be doing. And they would not have had that opportunity if they hadn't done something like a deep dive project. So that's a fantastic way for students to be applying skills, not just in their casework, but also in the classroom. So how does your commitment to social justice work drive your selection of cases for your docket in the clinic? That's a great question. And looking for opportunities where the justice component is highlighted is a huge part of, you know, identifying cases that come our way. Um, and one of the things we do to really bring that home for the students is we do talk about it in case rounds. We have an entire justice focused case rounds and the students read um, two articles. One of them is also by Jane Aiken, striving to teach justice, fairness and morality. The other is by Sarah Lambden, which is about how Westlaw can fuel ICE surveillance, which the students usually find very shocking and terrifying. And we use it as an opportunity for them to explore how justice plays out in their projects. Is it because it's an artist who's needed, you know, X number of hours of work over the course of weeks or months, or even in some cases for certain clients years, that they would never be able to afford reasonably in order to get any clearance for their art appropriation project? Is it because we have a nonprofit client who's trying to do some really important advocacy on the Hill that just wouldn't be possible within a regular budget? Um, these are just hypothetical examples, but it's clear from the way that the students engage with the case rounds that they really think deeply about the justice questions. And I think one of those justice questions is we are not serving indigent clients necessarily in the way that a lot of the social justice oriented clinics are. And so thinking about what justice means for the context of intellectual property and information policy clients is a little different. And it often comes down to how are our IP systems so confusing and twisted that it takes this much work, this much energy, this much effort. And the students are extremely clear about how much work and energy and effort it is to get to something approximating an answer. And I think that really brings home the fact that this is social justice work. It just doesn't look like what they might have expected coming in. So speaking of the student experience, we hear from law teachers who are teaching in fields that might not be visibly connected to social justice for students that they are nervous about student resistance, that students are going to, to be fighting the connection or, or fighting these great big questions that you're asking about what justice means and what IP and, and the tech field has to do with it. How have you encountered any student resistance? How have you navigated it? Is, is there a way that you set up your clinic from the beginning that will anticipate any kind of student resistance? It's such a good question. And it's something that I really worried about because I knew that there were probably going to be some students who would be really passionate about an IP clinic, but maybe not 
so much down for the cause. They just were like, I want to learn how to file a trademark, which is a totally fine goal, right? I would be happy to read about that in a learning goals memo. But I try to be really transparent from the get-go that this is a social justice-oriented clinic um, that's going to teach them the skills that they need to be lawyers in IP fields, but they're going to keep in mind these social justice principles as well. Um, and I think that's served me really well because we tend to recruit students who are really passionate about both aspects. I think one of the highlights for a lot of students is the fact that there's a social justice component and trying to be upfront about that, I think has reduced some of the concern. I think one of the things that's more surprising is we read a lot of primary court documents in the clinic, um, particularly for our criminal justice or criminal legal system related um, case rounds and I pick X social justice units. And in those contexts, it's really surprising to hear from students that they've never seen a complaint before or they've never seen an indictment before. And I think that those kinds of opportunities of bringing that into an intellectual property clinic are really exciting because now they're getting to learn more about another totally different system that they may not have expected to learn about, but they're still having the opportunity to explore um, substantively. So how do you recruit students for your clinic? Is it an application process or how, how do they end up in, in your course? So Georgetown does a really amazing job of setting up opportunities for students to learn about the clinics. There's usually a clinic fair. Um, I think that's pretty common at a lot of law schools. And so we do have 18 different clinics at Georgetown and we all get the opportunity to talk to students about what we do. Um, but we have changed that during the pandemic. We did videos the last time and then we did open Zoom room happy hour kind of situations. And I actually think that the biggest factor is just having the opportunity for students to ask questions and be curious. Um, because a lot of students don't know quite what they're looking for in a clinic, but the opportunity to ask around skills, ask around substance, ask around community, ask around opportunity can make a big difference. And then we do do an application process um, in which I try to be really mindful of creating complementary skill sets that will really fit for the clinic as a whole. Is there any advice you would offer to faculty who would like to be incorporating more social justice into their curriculum, but are nervous or, or new to this type of teaching? Oh my goodness, I don't know that I'm qualified to give advice to other teachers trying to do what I'm doing or what other people are doing. But I think one thing about it is you just have to lean in and do it, which is not really advice so much as just a platitude. But it's true. And I found that once I decided this is how I really wanted to structure the class, and I did a lot of soul searching to be like, is this how you should structure a clinic? Because this is not how most clinic seminars are structured. Um, but I decided that this was the right move for my clinic because I felt comfortable that the students would get the skills teaching that they needed during their casework component. And this was really an opportunity to expand just how they think as lawyers. And I hope that, you know, each year, I've only taught this once, but I'm hoping by the end of this year, I'll see the same flow, which is the way that they engage with these questions at the end of the semester is just so different than the way they engage with these questions at the beginning of the semester. There's a confidence there, there's an opportunity there. And I think that just keeping that in mind can be the additional push people need to try it out. And one thing I've also done is for the IP teachers who might want to try this out, I've made all of my course modules um, public. So they're all available on my website for people to download and experiment with whatever they want and swap out readings and do whatever they think would be the right thing for their class. That is fantastic. And we'll definitely make sure to link that in the podcast description as well for folks to, to access easily. Um, but what a 
generous uh, offering to share that with the broader community for folks who are looking for more concrete examples. Are there any exercises in particular that you would recommend that, that folks look to if they want to see how you're able to incorporate this into your seminar? Yeah, the one that I really enjoy, it's not an enjoyable topic because unfortunately most of the topics in the clinic are pretty dystopian, but we do a unit around the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is this old law from the 1980s. It was actually based on the perception of what could happen with hacking based on the movie War Games. And it actually has a really valuable lesson for teaching about the criminal legal system because the way the law has been interpreted is very inconsistent across um, different circuits. There's actually a circuit split um, and it's going up to the Supreme Court in Van Buren this session. And it's really unsure what's going to happen, but what it can do is can criminalize really average conduct of people doing bad things that aren't necessarily crimes. And so what we do is we create a matrix um, and one axis of the matrix is how reprehensible the act was. And one axis of the matrix is whether it violates the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And we ask the students to look through these primary documents and court decisions and make judgment calls about this was reprehensible, but it's probably not the violation of a federal hacking law. This wasn't that reprehensible, but it probably was a violation of a federal hacking law. And going through that systemically and kind of looking where these different plots fall on the matrix is really surprising, I think, for a lot of students because this is really different than what they've done in their criminal legal courses um, in some ways. And it's also really different than what they've done in their information policy classes as well. And I think it's the kind of exercise that you could do in a criminal class or you could do in an information policy class as well. I have never heard of anyone doing that visualization before. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of, and I've led some conversations with students around, all right, what's the goal of this law and policy? And is it actually achieving that goal? But I love the visualization of, you know, charting out, you know, how do, would we actually assess this conduct? And then how is the law responding to it? And as you were talking, I was imagining doing this for, you know, I practice in the field of immigration where there are a lot of um, consequences for having had contact with the criminal system that are completely nonsensical. And so I was imagining doing this with my students and I love this as, a, as an exercise of something I'd like to incorporate in my teaching. Good, I'm so glad. I'm glad I picked that one as an example. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, is there anything else you would, you'd like to share with folks about what you're doing in your clinic? No, I just hope that we have the opportunity to continue doing some really great work in the next X number of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And I think bringing social justice conversations into tech and IP feels like a really urgent, uh, a really urgent intersectional conversation we need to be having as surveillance technologies are developing so rapidly and organizations that are working in communities that are being targeted and, and impacted by these technologies are struggling to, kept, to keep up. I think what you're doing in trying to, to bring social justice principles into that work is so crucial. And I'm so excited about the future lawyers that you're teaching. Me too. And I'm glad that you mentioned surveillance technology because we happen to have a deep dive IPIPX social justice unit about exactly that today. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Uh, well, very lucky students who are in your course. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Amanda. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Great.